This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Hello, welcome to Wireless Books. This is Christine and I'm flying solo as Beth is away. And this is Wireless Books from the Athenaeum Library and it's brought to you from Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM. And I have some books to review first and um, so we'll get straight into it. I've got... Three very girly books, which Beth would would have hated, so it's probably just as well she's not here. I don't know where she is. She's off, she's on leave, so she she must be enjoying herself somewhere. So, and I'm not here to. Oh, she's not here to be brought down by me. Now, I've this sort of um, has developed this genre or subgenre in romance, and it's. Um, Australian outback romances. I guess New Zealand ones always used to have romances with um, farmers on high high country farms and stuff. And um, the Australians are doing these romances of, with people out in remote locations. And this one's called Rose River and it's by Margarita Osborne. And Margarita Osborne is a fifth-generation farmer and wife, mother and lover of all things country who has lived and worked on the land all her life. So, yes, and she um, farms in um, Gippsland High Country, which I think is in Victoria, but um, don't sue me if I'm wrong. And this is a story about a woman um, who was had a fantastic career as a PR executive but she um, was made redundant. So she takes um, a job, or it's almost not really a job, it's to house sit in a rural um, house in the rugged East Gippsland high country. And she just wants to be out of the city and for Christmas because all her other friends are still in high, high-fluting jobs and she just, um, it'll just, she feels it would make her feel worse. So... Verdicans Gap is where she's going to and it's um, more remote than she had anticipated and the house is in the middle of a cattle station and the handsome manager Sterling McEnvy doesn't appreciate a new farmhand and Jimmy Shoes so there you go so she's done she's remember the old program anybody my age and over will remember Green Acres where a city slicker I think he might have been an advertising agent, um, or maybe as a lawyer. Anyway, he took off to the country, and much to the disgust of his wife, who was who loved city living, and um, yeah, yes, it's bringing back fond memories for me. Now, the next one I've got is by Carly Lane, and it's "If Wishes Were Horses," and this is another one of these um, remote country um, love stories. And this is a, about a woman who, Sophie, who is paramedic and she has been recently widowed. So she's still coming to terms with losing her husband in a car accident. And she 
gets involved in a really um, tense situation at work with a man has has taken his partner hostage and he's and he's um and Sophie's gone in to to because this woman is injured and she's gone in to to perform as much as she can until the um until the police arrive and um take the guy into custody but um it all it all goes very pear shaped and she's injured and is off work for a while and recuperating and when she comes back to work she just it's just all too much for her and she's always loved being an ambo and but reluctantly she thinks she might just have to give it away and her boss suggests that she goes and works in a small country town and it's a town that almost lost its um its ambulance service and they all banded together to keep the service in the town and and the station is has there's one ambulance drive um, ambo there which will be Sophie and everybody else is a volunteer and they cover all the shifts between them and so it's sort of a, a different way of being but um, Sophie even though she's provided um, accommodation she falls in love with a house that's on the outskirts of town and she buys it and then she discovers the diary of a light horse trooper from the First World War which she finds fascinating and she then she gets a horse and then she gets involved with the local vet who also has lost his wife and yes so it's just meant to be but um, things keep happening in between and it's called If Wishes Were Horses I don't know if I said that and finally I have The Hidden Beach and it's by Karen Swan and Karen Swan has written quite a lot of um books and they tend to be set in different countries um, like the Spanish Promise, the Greek Escape, the Rome Affair, the Paris Secret and she makes a point of always um, doing, going to the countries that she's writing about and doing her research there and this one is actually set, set in Stockholm and she just has a little um, I don't know where it is, but I maybe it's at the back where she thanks her friends who told her. Yes, my loyal readers know I visit every location I write about, but I and but she does research. She knows what she wants to see before she gets there. This time it was different. She has several good friends of Swedish descent, and they shared enough stories over the year that I knew I wanted to set a book in Stockholm. It's one of the coolest cities in the world. So young, so colourful, so techy. So, yeah. And so this is set in Stockholm and the heroine, Belle, is working as a nanny for the perfect family. So there's the woman who's um, a career person and very, very beautiful. And she's married to a man who's a bit older than her, Max von Grey Greyers. And they have a nine-year-old son, Linus, and four-year-old twins, Eloise and Tilde and one morning Belle has arrived at work and she's getting the children out the door to take them to school and the phone rings and she actually debates with herself whether she's going to answer it or not but she thinks oh well she, she better just in case it's something important and a woman from a clinic asks her to pass on the urgent mes- message that Hannah's husband is awake 
Um, and Belle is confused because she saw Max only a few minutes earlier when he left and she arrived. And so then the truth comes tumbling out and Hannah has been married before and her first husband fell into a coma seven years earlier following an accident. And now he's awake and he wants his family back, which is, I think, rather an interesting premise. So Belle's sort of on the sidelines of this and, yeah, caught in the middle and it all... At all, yeah. I've, I've read a bit of it, and it is quite an interesting premise, and you'd think that really the main character would be Hannah, who has um, had a, a wonderful first husband who's in a coma and, and gone off with her second husband, and she, now she's got a sort of a decision to make. Though, of course, she can't really go back to her first husband because she's had the twins with, with her second husband, Max. Yes, it's all very complicated, and what would you do? And we'll just um, have a little break, and then I'll come back with more from George V. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. Okay, welcome back. Now, I'm going to be reading a lot from George V, Never a Dull dull Moment, by Jane Radley, because it annoys Beth so much, and so I'm really going to to take advantage of her not being here. So we're now just after the First World War. It's about March 1919, and David's affair with Frieda Dudley Ward began in earnest. Unhappily married to a Liberal MP, 16 years older than her, Frieda possessed the indefinable gift of charm. Every day for 16 years when he was in London, the prince met Frieda at 5 o'clock and spent the evening with her. They were the same age and both tiny. He weighed 9 stone 4 pounds and she was 2 stone lighter. When they were apart, he scrawled long letters to her, often written in baby language, they reveal him as an anxious, oversensitive to criticism, petulant and needy but besotted. Mrs Dudley Ward, the daughter of a Nottingham glove maker, became one of the great royal mistresses. Be like Mrs Keppel, Lord Essa advised her. Be discreet. She played her role to perfection, acting as the mother figure that the prince so badly needed. In doing so, however, she prevented him from forming the fundamental dynastic function of the Prince of Wales, to marry and beget an heir. David embarked on his second tour to New Zealand and Australia, half hoping that Frieda was pregnant and swearing that he would never marry any other woman but you. The day for kings and princesses passed, he declared. Monarchies are out of date, although I know it's a rotten thing for me to say and it sounds Bolshevik. Certainly the sentiments would have infuriated his father. Yes, yeah, so um, 16 years for, for your mistress, that's pretty um, amazing, isn't it? Now I've got another bit, and this is about the king. In the social unrest following the war, George found a new way of connecting with the working class. He had first attended the Football Association Cup final in 1914, and when the competition was resumed after the war, 
Cup finals became fixtures in the Royal Diary. The King was transformed into an enthusiastic schoolboy, gripping his hat with excitement. In April 1921, when the Royal Cars arrived unexpectedly at Stamford Bridge for the Cup final between Tottenham Hotspur and Wolverhampton Wanderers, the King was cheered on by a crowd of 72,000 men, waving cloth caps in the air as they sang the national anthem. He found it very moving. After the match, spectators rushed to the pitch to see the King present the cup. He told his mother, There are no Bolsheviks there. At least I never saw any. The country is all right. Just a few extremists are doing all the harm. So, yeah... the royal family still do this thing of attending sporting events and yeah, it does make them part of the um, royal, uh, of the nation's life, I guess, because sports are important to everybody. Now, this is actually quite sad. At 5.30 on Saturday, the 18th of January, 1990, Queen Mary was writing a letter to Bertie when Lala telephoned from Wood Farm to say that Johnny had just died in his sleep. The 13-year-old prince had suffered a severe epileptic attack the night before, and he had another bad fit that afternoon. The king and queen boated at once to Wood Farm, where they found Johnny lying peacefully, and Lala calm but heartbroken. Back at her desk by seven, after a very brief visit, Mary continued her letter. It was a merciful release to the poor little soul, but simply heart-rending, and she felt rather stunned. Mary and George were awfully upset, their first real sorrow. The letter that David wrote from France in response to the news upset Mary so much that she destroyed it. His feelings can be gauged from a letter that he wrote to Frieda Dudley Ward, which had recently, who had recently become his mistress, in which he described Johnny's death as the greatest relief imaginable, and that we've always secretly prayed for Johnny to become more of an animal. That we'd always secretly prayed for. Johnny had become more of an animal than anything else. His mother didn't answer his letter, and when David realised how upset she was, he apologised. I feel such a cold-hearted and unsympathetic swine for writing all that I did. David's callousness contrasts sharply with Bertie's intuitive sympathy over Johnny's death. I can see from your letter that it has upset you very much, and I don't wonder either, he told his mother. When I received the telegram from Papa, it upset me too, especially as I had not seen him since this time last year. Together in Belgium, the two brothers had packed to travel home for the funeral when a telegram arrived from the Queen telling them not to come. David, desperate to see his mistress, was furious. Bertie was miserable. I felt it would have been so nice to have been with you, he told May. Here it is so far away. The funeral at Sandringham was arranged for the 21st of January so that Queen Alexandra and Queen Maud could be present, but leaving no time for the brothers to travel. I hope you and David understand, wrote May to Bertie, but this putting duty above brotherly, brotherly grief seems a sad error of judgment. It was an awfully trying moment when the coffin was lowered, and we were terribly upset, wrote May to Bertie after the funeral. Upset, upset means tearful in Queen Mary's code. Her grief contradicts Pope Hennessy's opinion that the general lack of maternal feeling becomes a complete void when Prince John is concerned. Yet she could hardly bear to see him when he was alive. 
No one had visited him except the family, and then only once or twice a year. On afternoon walks, the royal family would head off towards Wood Farm, but only get near enough to see Prince John jumping about in a loony way. When Queen Alexander visited him 18 months before he died, he was playing football with Lala and three women of his household. He was so hot, but it came rushing over to me and showed me his garden and all over the house. He seemed quite happy, but all the same, I think he was longing for a companion. Poor, lonely Prince John. Yeah, that's... Prince John is a very sad story, and um, they um, made a television movie from it, and it, about him, and it was actually, it was very good. It was oh, I can't remember the name of it, but um, yeah, and um, he was the forgotten prince for a very long time. Now here's a bit more. Now uh, we've, we're skipping quite a bit. We're going up to um, June 1935, and the king was. 70. Chips Cannon watched him trooping the colour on his birthday. Alone, aged, sad and incredibly dignified, he rode a tired horse. Much of the time he was unattended. Anyone could have murdered him. Mussolini's threat threatened invasion of Abyssinia and the danger of a European war obsessed the king. In an extraordinary outburst, he told Lloyd George, I will not have another war, I will not. The last war was none of my doing, and if there is another one, I will go to Trafalgar Square and wave a red flag myself, sooner than allow this country to be brought in. Lord Dawson, his doctor, was concerned that the king had surrendered himself to invalid habits. He would sit hunched up in an armchair, taking little interest in these those around him. Dawson recommended showing films to rouse the king out of his lethargy. At a dining room at Buckingham Palace, Robert Burns noticed the king showing signs of having taken to the rouge pot. The artist Duncan Grant observed at the Jubilee that the king was tremendously made up. Every eyelash stuck together just like a debutante. Of course, Duncan Grant um, was married to uh, Vanessa Bell. Um, um, <laughs> the... I've forgotten her first name, and um, the Wolf. Um, was it Vanessa Wolf? No, it's not Vanessa. I've just gone off it on a tangent anyway. He was in the Bloomsbury group and um, inclined to be very cynical. The King's health was failing. Balmoral was enlivened by the surprise engagement of Prince Harry to Lady Alice Scott, the 33-year-old daughter of the Duke of Buccleuch, a plump, dullest ditchwater girl, according to Chips. The king grumbled and that Harry really ought to have written to me before, but he was pleased as the Duke of Buccleuch was one of his oldest friends. The queen thought Alice charming and intelligent and quite nice looking, though she is rather short, adding, I think she will suit perfectly in our family. Alice was placed next to the king at dinner because her stories kept him awake and made him laugh. The wedding of the Duke of Gloucester and Alice Scott took place in the private chapel at Buckingham Palace owing to the death of the Duke of Buccleuch. Afterwards, the king wrote in his diary, Now all the children are married but David. What happened next was not revealed until 1986, when Dawson's biographer Francis Watson wrote an explosive article for History Today. In his secret notes, Dawson recorded that at about 11 o'clock it was evident... Oh, this is when the king died... It was evident the last stage may endure for many hours. 
In order to ensure a brief final scene, I therefore decided to determine the end. Dawson's motive was to ensure that the King's death was reported in the Times the following morning, rather than in the evening papers later in the day. Dawson claimed that the Prince of Wales had told him that neither he or the Queen wished the King's life to be prolonged if he was mortally ill. But it is debatable whether the rather general remark gave Dawson the authority to inject the king with a lethal overdose of morphia and cocaine. As a medical reviewer observed, the killing of an unconscious patient without the patient's prior knowledge or consent cannot be described as a mercy killing. Rather, it was a convenience killing. Time to suit the purposes of the arrogant Lord Dawson, who consulted no one and considered that only he had the right to decide when the king should die. One lawyer with whom Kenneth Rose discussed the case declared emphatically that Dawson was guilty of murder as the king was in no pain and Dawson knowingly hastened his death. Driving past Buckingham Palace on the night the king died, Virginia Woolf, there you go, it was Virginia Woolf, noticed a cluster like a swarm of bees around the railings. The MP Robert Barnes walked home past the palace and saw vast crowds standing, standing sad and silent. Mosky, the Soviet ambassador, woke his chauffeur and drove to the palace to observe the long black queue slowly filing past the gates. There was a restrained, intense silence, but there were no tears or hysterics. Fleet Street was full of boys carrying newspapers with stories of, and editorials about the king, only an hour after his death, so much for the times being the first. The king's last words were eagerly awaited. Wigram, who was in the king's bedroom on the morning before he died, claimed that he heard his majesty saying the word empire with a query in his voice. All is well, sir, with the empire, said Wigram. This anecdote is not typical of the salty-mouthed king who once remarked of a politician attacking Buckingham Palace influence, what does he mean by saying that Buckingham Palace is not me? Who else is there, I should like to know? Does he mean the footman? When towards the end of the end, Stanley Hewitt injected the king with pain-killing morphia, the king exclaimed, God damn you! The queen laughed and said, How humorous to be able to say that, that when you were dying. Those are the last words of a monarch who once roared at a footman who dropped a loaded tea tray. That's right, Blake... Break out the bloody palace. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the king's um, last moments is um, quite sad. I mean, I guess everyone's last moments are sad. And um, I'm going to now talk about the queen's reputation as a royal kleptomaniac. Um, typical of these is the visit she paid to Lady Islington during the Second World War. First she admired a large vase bearing the, the tech arms, Lady Islington was silent. The Queen then praised the little table. Silence. As she got into her car, the Queen said, I really must go back and say goodbye to that charming little table. She did, but Lady Islington still said nothing, and the Queen departed in the wake of such unsuccessful attempts. She might write and offer to buy the object, but this was a coded royal command to make it a gift. It's hard to know whether these stories are a are just sort of um, embellished. The fact that they follow the same pattern might be taken as corroboration or may suggest that the authenticity is doubtful. Very few end in victory for Queen Mary. The object usually remained in the house of its owner. 
People learned to put away the Fabergé before she arrived and hide the carriage clocks. Perhaps the truth is that she behaved like this once or twice and gossip then took over. Yes, and it's um, something that sort of dodged her for, um, well, since her her death. And um, I've probably just got time for one last one. And this is um, this is um, taking um, the King's um, Jubilee or something. Yeah. At five minutes to 11 on the morning of Monday the 6th of May, 1935, the King and Queen left Buckingham Palace in a big open carriage drawn by six Windsor Grey horses in procession to St Paul's. This jubilee was not as grand as Queen Victoria's. For one thing, most of the royal cousins had lost their thrones. Gone too were the splendid Hanoverian cream horses which had drawn the state carriages since the reign of George I. They were destroyed by the King in 1921 and had drive to economise and to purge the royal mules of German blood. But the royal route was lined with cheering crowds, and the royal carriages were greeted with thunderous applause, especially the Yorks. The Kents and Wales nowhere, wrote Nancy Mitfield, who considered that Princess Maria, wearing an enormous unsuitable hat, was wrongly dressed and looked like a mannequin. The roars reached a Cassandro, Cassandro, when the King and Queen came into sight, all eyes were on the Queen in her shimmering silvery dress and white fur stole. Never has she looked so serene, wrote Kips, Chips Cannon, who got up at quarter past seven to witness the spectacle. So royally majestic, more so attractive. From a dowdy joke, via clothes I mean, she's become the best dressed woman in the world. I fear she eclipsed the King. The greatest number of people in the streets that I've ever seen in my life, wrote the King, for once at a loss for a numeral. Footage shows him saluting repeatedly to the crowds with the Queen's smile just and bowed her head in thanks. Neither of them did anything so vulgar as to wave. Also, though footage shows the little princes being encouraged by their grandparents to wave from the balcony. The temperature was 75 degrees in the shade and 7,000 people fainted and had to be rescued by ambulances. Well, that's that's our, that's basically our time up. And um, until we meet again, happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.